0: My wife and I recently started a show on Netflix, or actually it's on Amazon Prime, not Netflix. Um, uh, it's called Newsroom. Uh, I've only seen one episode of it, and it is an HBO show, so don't take this as like an endorsement of it, because I take no responsibility for anything that happens in terms of nudity, language, or HBOisms uh, after the first episode. Um, but I loved it. And the premise of the show, uh, at least the pilot of it, is there's this national news anchor. It's like a serious version of Anchorman. Um, there's like this national news anchor who's trying to restore uh, this uh, news station, this nightly news station, this national news station, um, back to the good old days of reporting the news um, with the facts. Regardless of who the facts offend, they're hard-hitting, they're digging stories. Uh, and in the first episode, you see this sequence come in. They get this lead, um, which comes in. And it kind of sets the newsroom. It's like a snowball. Somebody starts talking about it, and somebody else starts talking about it. Pretty soon, there are field reporters running around and producers coming in, and things are getting heated, and they're running it, and they're fact-checking, and they're researching. Um, and actually, what they're researching is the BP oil spill of 2010. It came in as like a small story. We're not going to lead with this. It's just an oil spill. Who really cares? Um, but they're the first one to really report this. And so you, we know how big this story was in hindsight. But here's the thing. I graduated the university here uh, in broadcast journalism. I was a news anchor. I li- we had a, a newsroom. Do we have any broadcast journals here? Dylan's not here tonight. No, he's, he has class, probably in the journalism building. There's a newsroom there. I lived in that newsroom for two years. Um, I was there till like 3 o'clock in the mornings editing and putting together packages. And as I was watching this, it just stirred in me this great affection. Um, to go back to the news desk. It makes me sound like I'm Superman when I say that. To go back to the news desk, to, to roll up my sleeves and to do reporting and researching and facts. And, and in my mind, I picture myself sitting behind this news desk with all the screens and my minions running around behind me and me delivering this sort of like poetic, hard-hitting rendition of the nightly news that has you like on your knees sobbing at the end of it. Um, and I, I remember watching it, leaning over to Sarah during this. like, this makes me wish... Uh, I could go back into the news industry. it's funny, just as we've been ramping up to GCF, uh, I've been kind of like nostalgic with my wife of my uh, college years here. Um, And as compelling as that show was for me, as much as I desired to go back and experience that, um, my biggest regret in college isn't failing to be a news anchor. It's not failing to be Stuart Scott or to have a sports talk show, which was my dream. Um, really, as Sarah and I have discussed this over the past few weeks and we're reminiscing um, about college, the one thing, if I were to go back and live my four years all over again, this is what I would hope for, that my life would look like my faith. There's a lot of dumb things I did in college. There's a lot of cool things I didn't do in college, but, but realistically, looking back, um, a little older, a little wiser, I just wish that the actions of my heart would have aligned more with the belief of my heart. And it's not that, um, it's not that I did bad things in college, it's, it's pretty much that I just didn't do Christian things in college. Um, and I was on staff at a church during this. And, and, and that doesn't mean I didn't walk around campus with like on my knees praying, I didn't evangelize to everyone I saw and I regret not doing that, but, but there was something missing between what I believed and how I acted in college. And today, as we're opening the book of Romans, Paul is going to press on each and every one of us, not only on how you view your college years, but how you view your entire life. How should we live? If if you're in here and you claim to be a Christian, how should we live? What shapes your priorities? What shapes your affections? There's a lot of people in here tonight. My question is for you, and there's people who have been Christian for a long time. There's new Christians. There are people who are just looking at this, um, wondering what this group is all about. My question is, why are you here? There are a lot of things. It's kickoff to the NFL season tonight. If I wasn't paid to be here, I wouldn't be here. (laughs) I'm not a college student anymore. Um, So why are you here? And more importantly, what do you expect from this? We go to school because we expect a degree. What do you expect to get from this? Of what benefit is coming and sitting under the word of God to you? And here's what Paul's going to help us understand tonight. The big picture of what Paul is going to say uh, is this. The life of the Christian should be compelled, motivated by the fame of Jesus and sustained by the encouragement of the gospel. We can be compelled by a lot of things in the short term, but those ultimately fizzle. But we're looking for something compelling that is enduring for your whole time here and for your whole life uh, in the future. And we're going to see this in two ways tonight. First, we're going to see um, that we are called to participate in the glory of Jesus. And then secondly, we're going to see that we are uh, then called to be encouraged through the body of Christ called to participate in his glory and to be encouraged in his body um, and so before we get into that let's just pray um, and ask God to come tonight so Uh, Lord, uh, what a foolish thing to ask you to come. You you are here. We don't need to ask you to come for you dwell with us as believers. Um, And not only do you dwell with us out of obligation, like sometimes my two-year-old has to live under my rules, you dwell with us because you love us and you desire to be with us. But more importantly, you desire to change us, to transform us and to draw us into a greater awareness of who you are and a greater worship of what you have done in our lives. And Lord, I thank you that what the theme of Romans gets at is that when we understand that rightly, truly, rightly, and accurately, we can't help but be changed in real, observable ways, not for the weirdness of what Christianity may be, but for the truthfulness, lovingness, and uh, the urgency of what the gospel needs to be in our own lives. We pray you bless our time tonight. Um, Thank you for the cross. Thank you for this campus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So, last week, um, we did kind of a little summary introduction into the book of Romans. And today, we're going to see Paul's opening remarks in this book. And one thing we need to remember as we're reading Romans, we're taking 28 weeks to go through this book. Uh, it took the original recipients 30 minutes to read it. Okay? So we're going slow, but it's intended to be read as a letter. That's what Romans was. And um, as we're going to see, letters written during this era of history are a little different from letters we write now. Because typically if you were to sit down and write a letter to someone you would say, this is my wife's favorite line out of like any movies, Dear Darla, I hate your stinking guts. Love, is it Alfalfa who says that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, love Alfalfa. So, dear recipient, content of the message, author of the message. But actually, um, what was common during this time was to say, I, alfalfa, to you, Darla, do hate your stinking guts. And so it, it's, it's the writer, it's the recipient, and then we get into the body. And we see that structure actually right away in the passage Jordan just read. Um, if you have your Bible, you can open it there. It's also on the screen. It says, Paul, so he's identifying himself, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, li- we live in a world um, where because of our technology, we all get to write our own biographies. Okay? It took work writing biographies of people who lived uh, even 30, 50 years ago. If, someone, if one of you becomes famous, it's going to be the easiest like grad project for someone to write your biography because your whole life is on social media. We don't have to go digging for things. And the the, the interesting thing about social media is we get to frame how we're perceived. We get to lead with what we want to lead with. We display our lives 140 characters at a time. And even more than communicating it, we get to show it through 24 Instagram filters a day. Look at how sweet my coffee is. Look at how the colors of my desk pop under the Nashville filter. Um, And we need to do all these things day after day after day. And really, we are not just informing people of what's going on. We're informing the world of our priorities. We're informing the world of what we deem to be important and how we want to be received by by that world. And I think it's important when we start this book of Romans that we pause and we ask ourselves, what are we saying about ourselves? We just watched a video that said, the number one person who talks to you is yourself. Over the course of the day, you say thousands of things to yourself. But at the same time, you also talk the most about yourself. Through what you wear, through how you act, through your friends. So what are you trying to say about yourself to this world? What do you communicate on Twitter, on Facebook, on Snapchat, on Instagram, on Pinterest, on MySpace, if you're Becca? Um, What are you putting out there? What do you lead with, right? You've got a small, on tour, you've got a small place for a bio. Do you lead with the degree you're pursuing? Do you lead with the location you're at? Do you lead with athletics, teams you like, teams you're on? Do you lead with vocation? Some people just like, their bio is their name. (laughs) And I'm like, you can't really get more arrogant than that. (laughs) It seems cool, but it's like, who am I? I am Tyler. (laughs) That's all you need to know. Take it from there. Sorry if that's your bio. I'm not picking on anyone. Um, but I think God wants you to repent. Uh, but here, here, we see, in, it, in, in great brevity, Paul is giving us his Twitter bio, isn't he? The first line we see, what does he say? He says, Paul, super apostle, founder of all the churches in Asia Minor, called by God to be his tool to the Gentiles. Well, that's not what Paul says. Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Three times, in three ways, with three different verbs, Paul communicates the whole of his existence as being directly and intricately tied to his conversion to Christ. For Paul He has no existence outside of what God has done in his life through Jesus. He calls himself a servant, or what's literally interpreted as, and depending upon the Bible translations you guys have, a slave. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. He sees himself as called to be an apostle. And for those of you who don't know the story of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, you can't get any more called to be called as Paul was, right? Right? So just brief background on Paul. He was formerly called Saul. And he spent all of his energy, his life motive was to kill Christians because Christians were perverting Judaism. And so he went around, he held cloaks. There's this beautiful line when they're stoning the first martyr of the Christian church. And it said that those who were really getting aggressive and throwing rocks at Stephen, they needed to lose their coats so they could throw the rocks more harder to kill him quicker. They went and they laid their cloaks at the feet. Of Saul. So he was was a murderous, awful man who made it his business to destroy Christians. And one day he's going uh, to Damascus and he's going there to kill Christians. And Jesus appears and he blinds him. He says, listen, Paul, I know it's your business to kill the church and to persecute the church, but I'm Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. And rather than killing Christians, I'm going to show you my glory and you're going to be a Christian. You're going to desire the very thing you hate. You're going to become the very person you disdain. And he says this, and I'm not just going to use you as a worshiper of me. I'm going to use you. The phrase Jesus uses is my chosen instrument to carry my name before all the peoples and all the kings of the earth. Says not Paul's imagination, says not the people around Paul, but says Christ himself the resurrected Lord, to Paul. See, Paul didn't grow up in a Christian home where the assumption was he'd grow up to love Jesus. Jesus literally, vocally blinded him and called him to be an instrument, which Paul then declares in the third part of his biography that he is set apart, right? Paul's not going through this world willy-nilly. It's not that he's got other jobs to do and maybe if he has time, he'll do some Christian work. He is set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's life is hidden in Christ as a slave. Paul's commission is hidden in Jesus as being called, and his career is set apart for the gospel of God. And in Acts 9, we see Paul's conversion. We see two purposes in it that are given. First is that Paul is to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul is to bring the gospel to all the non Jews and before kings. Secondly, Paul is to suffer for the sake of Jesus. It's kind of the cruel twist that happened at Paul's conversion. You were persecuting Christians. Now, Paul, you will suffer because you yourself are a Christian. What Paul actually says, that he himself is filling the afflictions of Christ. Where Christ suffered for the Jews, Paul is now suffering to bring the gospel to the very people he was killing. Not suffering because Jesus lacked, but suffering to show the conversion in his own life. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I don't want people to leave and be like, man, that Christian group just got mad because my bio is my name. And I need to go and I need to say, Miserable sinner saved by Jesus, hoping to make it to heaven. Ah, Um, that's not what I'm saying here. I could care less about your social media bio, um, but here we need to understand that that's not the solution because Paul's unique. Okay, there's one Paul in the scope of biblical history. Pretty unique guy. Pretty unique commission. Pretty unique conversion. He's an apostle. There's only a handful of other people who are called apostles, which is defined by one who is chosen by Jesus himself to follow him and given a commission to preach the gospel to many people. Lot, all of us are called to preach the gospel. There's only a handful who are selected by Jesus himself. And under that assumption of Paul's uniqueness, he continues in this letter and he says this in verses two through five. Um, so Paul, uh, we see his bio: servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Picking up in verse two which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. And yet he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Apostleship means to be sent out, this ministry of being sent out to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. So whether Paul is doing this intentionally or not, I can't imagine he's not doing it intentionally, but I don't know what Paul was writing here. He's really just given us a two-fold snapshot of what he's going to unpack for us in the book of Romans. Because in the first 11 chapters, we're going to see Paul picking up that theme that Jesus, this gospel, was prophesied in the Old Testament. This king was coming, a shift was happening, a new day was dawning, and its capstone is the resurrection. If Jesus died on a cross, and that's the end of the story, we don't have a Christianity. But when Jesus rose from the dead, it was not only shaming death and defeating sin, but it was also proving that this is our Savior, that this is our Jesus, that this is our Messiah in this. And so we emphasize this in the first 11 chapters that we're going to see in the first half of of this school year. And in the second half of the school year, starting in Romans chapter 12, we get to what Paul calls the obedience of faith. That phrase obedience of faith he uses in in, uh, 1 verse 6, but also the very last paragraph of Romans. He talks about God praying to bring about this obedience of faith. What does that mean? Obedience of faith. That's what we want to find in this book of Romans. That's why our series is called Learning to Live. How are we to live as Christians? Because here's the thing. What we know is Christianity does not equal obedience. Just because you obey doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you're moral doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you bark when people tell you to doesn't mean you're a Christian. But what Paul is saying is this thing that you're believing is so transformative that it will produce obedience. That it will produce things. And if those things aren't being produced, I doubt you really believe it. If you believe a meteor is going to hit cam 123 at 754 and you stay in here, you don't really believe a meteor is going to hit this building. And so Paul is pressing us to have an obedience of faith here. And he actually gives his purpose statement of his life um, in 1 verse 5 where he says this, um, Through whom we. Paul's really weird and a lot of times he uses we just to refer to himself because he likes to confuse Greek scholars. Um, And so he uses we, and he's talking about himself here, because the whole rest of this paragraph is um, him in the first person singular. Anyway, um, that was an excursus. Uh, He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, so here's then the purpose. Why has he received grace and apostleship? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, that's Jesus' name, among all the nations. That's a weighty task, all of you received syllab- syllabus- syllabi in your classes. I never know which one's which. You received a piece of paper in your class. None of the purpose statements on those was to bring about an obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Because that's heavy. That's a big task, that Paul is tasked with bringing obedience to faith, which makes Jesus famous, not in Rome, not in Jerusalem, not in Caesarea, not in Thessalonica, but in the whole world, before all the nations, and he's given this task to Paul. So yesterday, I'm a with some guys from GCF, and uh, Parker uh, was falling with us, and Parker is creating, uh, I started asking him questions about what he's doing with his life, and he's getting a master's, and he wants to be a PhD, but something he does for hobby, Is he makes this algorithm uh, that is tracking baseball stats and performances, Uh, and basically what he's saying is he's using the really smart gifts God has given him to make fantasy baseball more enjoyable for people. It takes all this data, plugs it into something, and it gives you the best available players for your fantasy draft in baseball. And he used big words and probabilities and all sorts of things. I had no idea, and I listened to that. I'm like, that's great. Good for you. I'm, I'm really glad you know how to do that, and you should do that, but I have no idea what's going on. I'm glad there are people like Parker that do things that I have no idea what to do because I like the ultimate product. I like fantasy sports. I like it when people can get by uh, in school doing studies on sports. That's what I'm all about. Um, and oftentimes, we can view Christian living the same way. We can see Paul say things like this. We could see Peter and other New Testament apostles say things. And we could say, man, a calling to live according to the glory of God, to bring about obedience to the faith for the fame of his name among all the nations. Wow, that's good, Paul. You should do that. You should definitely do that. Meanwhile, uh, I'm going to go to the food zoo. I'll be back. Let me know how that goes right? I mean, look at what we just learned about Paul. Hand chosen by God, blinded by Jesus, commissioned to be a tool to reach the nations. Of course you should do that, Paul. Naturally, you're the Apostle Paul. You wrote the majority of the New Testament. You wrote Romans. Man, if you spend time learning theology at all, it's like Romans is the brick that sits on top of the theologian. It's like, it's this heavy book. And Paul wrote it like as a letter, like he tweeted Romans. Um, and, and so we're like, you should, you should do these things, Paul. That's good for you. But maybe not for me. Because that's big. That's a big task. But look at what Paul says next, just subtly in his introduction. He says this including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. See what happened here? I'm called. I'm going to do something. You're going to do something because you're called. You're going to participate in this. You don't get a pass. Apostle or not, you don't get a pass on what I'm drawing you into here. And this is the first point. He says, Christians are called to participate in the fame of Jesus. He uses the word sake here, for the sake of Jesus. But I think for us, fame gets at the same thing, but it's more understandable. To do something for the sake of someone can kind of get lost. But to do something for the fame of others, man, our society gets fame. We understand fame. I, I just looked um, at tours today. Music tours. U2's last two tours. U2's last two tours. That's inconvenient. Um, it, they brought in in attendance over 11 million people. That's. I was in a band once. It was fake. We had a fake concert where we got 20 people to pose so we could see how many likes we could get on Facebook. That's not 11 million people. That's huge. It grossed nearly a billion billion dollars and here i guarantee you this isn't what happened with u2's concerts people didn't be like oh there's a band i should go listen to them they're like u2 is here i don't care if bono plays with a fiddle for 45 minutes while riding a unicycle i'm gonna go watch it's u2 we're drawn to that in fact today fame is such a big deal we have celebrities who are famous for being famous For no apparent reason, I'm looking at the Kardashians, right? Why do we care about you? Because you're famous. Why are you famous? Because you're famous. It's this perpetual cycle of idiocy over here that we just keep watching and watching and watching. And see, here's the thing. Everyone, while those might be the extremes, every single one of you desires, wants, fame, and approval at some level. Could be at this big level, could be I want my name to be screamed by crowds as I deliver an algorithm that saves fantasy baseball. It could be that man, I just want I just want my roommate to accept me. Could be closer to home. It's like, man, I'm just sick of my dad dogging on me. I just want to do something that my dad approves of. Every one of us desires that approval, desires that recognition and desires that fame, and yet Paul is calling us to live not for the fame, recognition, or approval of self, but for the fame, recognition, and approval of Jesus on a global level. And we can't even manage a local thing for ourselves. But why is Paul doing this? Look at the following verse. Verse 7. Paul gives us introduction. I love how he starts this. We, these are throwaway lines sometimes. But he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Why are we called to live as reflectors of God's glory locally and globally? Because we're loved by God because we're called to believe in this Jesus. See, Christian living outside of love, if you try to live like a Christian outside of this overwhelming awareness of God's love for his people, you're striving at the wind. You have no motivation. If one of the girls in here asked me to watch Pride and Prejudice with them, no way. If my wife asked me to watch Pride and Prejudice with them, maybe. (laughs) Why? Because I love her. And understanding the love she has for me compels me to do things. And so if you breeze over this, Paul talks about doing a lot of things in Romans. If you breeze over Paul's introduction to Romans, to the saints who are loved, not vaguely, not by me, not by society, loved by God, called to be his saints, grace and peace to you because you're going to do all right. To understand the love of God connected to your own salvation and being chosen in God is a wonderful tool for mission. You see, Paul isn't attempting to conjure up fascination with an object of mediocre value. Paul's not up here like Billy Mays trying to sell us on miracle washing machine tablets. Paul is peddling the most valuable thing the world has ever seen. He's calling us to live as faithful consumers of an otherworldly gospel. Paul is saying this, he's saying, this Jesus, this Lord of all, is what he says, this descendant from David, this one declared by the Spirit to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of righteousness at work within you, who was resurrected from the dead, this Jesus Christ who has given us grace and salvation, loved us, called us according to his mercy, this Jesus demands your affection not because he's greedy but because he's deserving you see you may do much for your own name in your life personally physically you could do a lot to keep in shape you could do a lot in your studies you could do a lot in your career you could do a lot relationship you may be one of those people who achieves great notoriety among your peer group you could be one that maybe even advances through that peer group and is more broadly known, but you will probably never be as well known as Kim and Chloe. And you need to accept that. And you know what? You might be good at a musical instrument. You might be great at acting, but you will never, well, maybe, you will probably not have a tour with an attendance over 11 million. If I just crushed your dreams, I'm sorry. You may have the fame of a Hollywood movie star, the affection of a beloved musical act, but your name will be forgotten from the halls of history, but Jesus' name will never be unknown. It may not be visible to culture. It might not be on the billboards. It might not be headlining our music festivals. But the, the, the name of Jesus Christ is embedded on the hearts and affections of every person whom he has loved and called to himself from history past to history future and all eternity. This world will not forget the name of Jesus. Look at how Paul himself talks in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. And again, we see this, Jesus lowering himself prior to this, and then he says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Anyone who's got knees, you're all bowing. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, for you, starting school here in this semester, To attach your desire of longevity and success to any name, idea, a movement on earth is to attach it to something built with innate fragility and temporality. It's fading, it's fragile, it's leaving, it won't endure but to attach the whole of your life to the one who transcended heavens, to come to earth, to save us from the grip of death, to render it useless and harmless, and then to bring us to the affection of God for the sole purpose of love for us and glory to him. That is a life of true gospel understanding that you don't have to worry about the trinket of fame or affection fading because no name will ever surpass that name. Because no story will ever surpass that story So what in your life dictates your desires? Because while, as we just read in Philippians, one day every tongue, every knee, every person shall confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord, that day has not yet come. That means for you, you're faced with this choice. In this moment, what is the weight of King Jesus in your life? you cannot effectively live for the fame of someone you yourself are not amazed with. You cannot effectively live for the glory of someone else who you do not personally know. Is the obedience of your faith, phrase that Paul uses, is it acting as a billboard for the gospel of Christ or is it acting as a black hole for the vain desires of self? Uh, One pastor named John Stott said this of this passage. He says, If therefore God desires every knee to bow to Jesus and every tongue to confess him, so should we. We should be jealous for the honor of his name, troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due to it. I love this part. The highest missionary motive is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as incentive as that is, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, the biggest advocates of medical research are often those who have been saved and experienced the relief of modern medicine. In the same way, the biggest fame reflectors of Christ Jesus are those who have experienced the salvation of what Paul calls the gospel of God. To taste and not reflect is to have not tasted. To not have a longing in your heart for the sake and fame and glory of Jesus is either to not understand the gospel or to have never seen it. I was teaching my son how to throw a frisbee today. I wanted him to throw that frisbee really well because I loved him. As simple as that is, in the same way, if we claim to have an affection for Jesus, but it doesn't shape our desire for Jesus to be made big in our lives, you don't really know Jesus. If a two-year-old can do that, throwing a Frisbee at his feet, but Jesus can't, you've got too small of a savior. This obedience of faith, which produces a global fame of Jesus, is not separate from your college education. It's not granted a brief reprieve for your homework or for your thesis or for your sports games or for your social activities. Rather, instead of throwing that away, Christianity rightly understood as Paul's communicating obedience of faith to Jesus Christ and the gospel of God infuses your life in such a way that while doing what you are doing, you cannot act without a constant awareness of his beauty and his fame shaping your thoughts, desires, and actions in everything you do. This, my friends, is hard work. To think it, to say it, to write it, simple. To do it is laborious. This is why Paul offers this, secondly, and in closing, encouragement through the body of Christ. Paul gives this weighty opening. He could have just said hello. But now he goes on to say this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. Every, in this new faith that is, that is slowly growing, people are hearing there's Christians in the capital. In Rome, this powerful city, there are Christians. And that's exciting to them. That shows that Christianity isn't scared of imperial dictators. That shows that Christianity isn't scared of language borders or boundaries. It's not scared of oceans or shipwrecks or serpents. It's not scared of hostile culture, accepting culture, or any culture. If, culture, if Christianity can gather in Rome, then Christianity cannot be stopped by men. And it brings great hope to those who are around. For God is my witness, whom I serve with the Spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You see, in order to do what Paul has called us to do, those simple words, including you, those words carry great weight in your life. To do what Paul has called you to do in verses one through six, we must live as Paul desires us to live in verses eight through 15. Look back at Romans 1, 11 and 12. Paul says this. What's his desire for us? For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. What's this gift, okay? Is it a huge gospel gun? Is it speaking in tongues, right? Paul, we've heard you speak in tongues. We've heard there's miracles. We hear people just touch you and they're healed. Can we get some of that action? What are these spiritual gifts? And then he defines it. He says this, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You see, Paul knows that to live in accordance to the gospel, you can't do it alone. We need each other to be strengthened. We need each other to be strong. We need each other to be the church of God. Let me level it with you guys tonight, okay? This is a good thing everybody left already uh, because here's the deal. This year, just like clockwork in the previous 5 years of GCF meeting in this room, there's a pattern that's going to happen. Some of you will show up more irregularly than others. You'll stop coming to GCF, probably start finding other things to do, assignments, activities on Sunday mornings. You'll stop coming to church. You have every intention to come, it just doesn't happen. You start finding friends and hobbies and activities take you out of a different sphere, you stress your limits of what you think is right, wrong, press you in ways you never thought you'd be pressed, and you will fall away. You won't be here, you won't think here, because your heart won't be here. I guarantee you, as hard as as it is for me to say, some of you in this room won't be here in May. I talked to a guy who did college ministry for 20 years, this summer. I said, what's the hardest thing? I thought it would be like energy levels or s'more games. So said, the hardest thing is every year seeing people walk away from the gospel. You'll walk away not because you've found another student group, not because you've been more involved in another church. If that happens, that's great. But you'll walk away because your eyes will have become blinded to the beauty of the gospel. The gospel doesn't change, but our hearts are fickle, and our eyes are dim. See, it makes me think of this story. Um, we went to St. Thomas uh, when my son was, just about a year and a half, this beautiful um, uh, Caribbean island, and uh, we, we were there, and we're sitting on this beach, and it's this bay, and there's all, there, you never know how many blues there are until you're sitting and, and seeing this beautiful clear ocean. And there are palm trees, and there's this breeze, and my son has a dump truck running it into a tree up on the pavement of the resort. There's this beauty in front of us and Owen is just like, (laughs) he's fine. He's content. But here's the thing. It's not the fault of the ocean that Owen wasn't entertained. It's not the fault of the beauty of the water that Owen wasn't captivated. It was the limited capacity of his heart and the blindness of his eyes to understand the beauty that was set before him. So too can we lose sight of the gospel in our own eyes. Because to really taste the gospel of Christ is to have an enduring faith which never fails to neglect the strength of others. That's why Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says after he defines this gospel, he says, do not neglect meeting together. The whole message of Hebrews is do not fall away. Do not neglect. Do not disbelieve. Don't stop meeting together. That's a bad step. Not because God cares about attendance, but because God cares about your soul. And see, Paul offered us grace and peace, and he knows all too well because he's seen it firsthand that there are many things in this world that each and every one of us will be tempted with false peace and temporary grace. But it's only the gospel which has permanence if we're not careful to cling to the beauty of Christ and hold one another to keep that view in mind with the hope of the gospel, we will fall prey to empty promises and flashy, uh, flashy gimmicks of the flesh, not because Christ has failed, not because the gospel has failed, but because our own hearts are weak and sin is strong and we need a savior and he's capable. You just need to look. See, we need each other not because we need camaraderie. We need each other because we need the gospel. See, I want GCF to be distinct from any other Christian group on campus because more than making friends, more than having fun, more than having a good time and eating s'mores and going on retreats and and being comfortable, we want to hold each other to the glory of the gospel of God, of the obedience of faith for the fame of his name among the nations and at the University of Montana. Why do we do the things we do? Why do we have small groups? Why do we have Thursday nights? Why do we have church services? Why do we want to hang out with you throughout the week? man, because I need you to remind me of Jesus and you need me to remind me of Jesus because that's where we're going to be encouraged by the faith of one another. In conclusion, here are three practical things. If you really want to live as Paul's calling you to live, if, if, this, if, if the gospel is, is of less value to you, you can stop listening here. But if you want this, if you want salvation, if you want joy, if you want purpose, if you want Jesus, mind these notes. First, you need to pray. You need to pray that Jesus would show himself to you as worthy, beautiful, and compelling. Because here's the thing, Jesus doesn't need a PR campaign. His PR campaign was a cross which stands above history calling all men to himself through the defeat of sin and the ultimate demise of Satan saying, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Pray that you get that vision. Secondly, stay. Stay with us. It's not about us. It's not about GCF. It's not about Sovereign Hope. It's about the church. Stay with the church. Jesus died with the church. Jesus purchased the church. Jesus married the church. Jesus is going to take the church. Don't stay for the sake of numbers. Stay for the good of your soul. See, value eternity over temporality. Value eternity over the short things. Know that a right view of the gospel doesn't make you neglect your studies, but a right view of the gospel makes you dive into your studies with a greater thing because you're not studying for the glory of self. You're studying for the fame of God's name to take this task, to own it, to to bring it to the world, to expand it, to show it, and to mimic and reflect Christ in all that you do. Third, you need to know the gospel. You need to know the gospel. Paul ends with this in verse 15. He says, in light of all this, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. Paul's encouragement, Paul's letter, it's essential to know the gospel. He's not moving beyond it, but he's sticking to it. If you don't know the gospel, stay with us. If you're unclear about the implications of the gospel, stay here because you'll encounter it in Romans. If you're unclear about the full implications of it, Paul wants to help you. Paul wants you to see it, to know it, to understand the beauty of Christ and only then does he ask you to do anything. But until you do that, don't try to change your life. Don't try to build on a faulty foundation. Know the gospel in spirit and truth and live as one who is loved and called by God. Pray, stay, and know the gospel. We want to do this together for the glory of God, for the good of the university. It's because to live as a as a Christian is to be compelled by the fame of Jesus among the nations and sustained by the encouragement of the gospel in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord. I mean, Paul knows how to open a book. He gets at our hearts. He challenges us, Lord. And Lord, Lord, I pray that by the grace we have received in salvation, you will grant us an obedience of faith for the sake of your name among the nations. Lord, I pray that as we gather together weekly, that we may be strengthened by the gift of mere faith, of seeing the gospel of someone else and letting them see my gospel, that we may celebrate that we are wonderfully not unique. And then we are called by the same gospel to the same Lord, to the same salvation. And that is beautiful, wonderful, and compelling. Lord, we give you our hearts and our hands. We pray that through this book, you teach us to live rightly, obey rightly, worship rightly. But more importantly, Lord, we pray you allow us the grace of seeing rightly. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.